Good evening. Uh, this is the. Uh, oh, sorry, I jumped a pen there. Good evening. This is a Friday night edition of Liberal Fix Radio. I'm your host Keith Breckis, broadcasting from the great state of Arizona right now. And uh, we haven't been on the air for a few weeks, so if you missed us, here we are. And um, tonight, I'm happy to have we have a special guest, um, Lisa Stolberg, who is mm-hmm. um, who is uh, author of the book LGBTQ Social Movements and a sociologist as well. Um, and so we're happy to have her. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll introduce her now. Lisa, how are you doing this evening? I'm good, Keith. Thanks for having me. Good, wonderful. And uh, maybe if you just want to give the people a little bit about your background and then we'll get right into the book and the topic at hand. Sure. So um, I'm talking to you from New York City, where it's currently 10 o'clock on a Friday night, so you'll probably hear some um, some fire engines going by, as I've heard all night. Um, I am a professor at New York University. I'm a sociologist who teaches in the School of Education here, um, and I've been teaching an undergraduate social movements class since I got to NYU more than 15 years ago. And I have taught about movements for gender and racial and sexual social justice for a long time, and I found that uh, my students are really interested in learning about lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer organizing, LGBTQ organizing, but they really hadn't learned anything in high school, like almost nothing in high school and very little in their other college classes about this set of movements, Um, but they had a lot of interest whether they identified as LGBTQ themselves or not. Um, And there are a lot of really great resources out there and wonderful books on the topic of LGBTQ social change. But I was looking for something that would be sort of short and accessible and able to be taught to undergraduates. And hopefully this book will also um, appeal to even younger students and I'm hoping a general public too, as I've been talking about the book with folks. Um, There's just such a, it's such an, um, time of political flux in this country right now, and I think there's a lot of interest in learning about politics, and particularly politics um, around uh, underrepresented and marginalized minority groups. So the book is both for um, students like mine and hopefully for a general public interested in learning more. Awesome. I, I really appreciate that, and I, I'm always always excited to see when sociologists write books that are hopefully accessible to the general public because I I feel like a lot of times academics talk to other academics and (laughs) even when they're talking about really important topics about social change and stuff, but it's kind of like if it doesn't sort of get outside of that circle, um, you know, that's kind of sometimes unfortunate because we'd like to reach a wider audience. Um, So your book is, is, the name of the book is LGBTQ Social Movements and I guess we can get right into some of the substance of the book, and I'm sure many of our listeners will find this very interesting. It's, it kind of touches on a lot of topics that our show has covered over the years or, or intersects with a lot of those, um, so I think people very be very interested. Um, so to start with, if we want to learn how so successful movements for social change work, why is it particularly instructive to examine the movement for gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, and queer justice? I think, first of all, it's important to learn about the set of movements in part just to broaden our view of American history. Um, as I mentioned, I've talked with students for a number of years and even just in talking with people about this book and asking the question, what did you learn in high school about 
um, LGBTQ social change, the answer is almost nothing. And I do think that this is part of American history that um, we should all know about, um, just so broadening our view of what social change looks like and the um, people who have fought for social change in this country. I think for this particular set of movements, we see a lot of change over a short amount of time. Um, and so that's particularly interesting um, and instructive about this set of movements. We see shifts in public opinion that are um, really relatively pretty large and pretty fast. So um, change in public opinion about marriage equality, for instance, um, and just change in general of um, people's reported sense of comfort with LGBTQ people in their lives and LGBTQ acceptance in general. So I think that that's an interesting part of this movement is just that we've seen relatively quick change over time. I also think that we see um, just a lot of organizational diversity in this movement that there has been there have been many different kinds of fights for social change around gender and sexuality, and I'm sure we'll talk more about some of those, but just that that's an interesting part of this movement is we can learn more about how social change works um, in general. And then just another theme that I talk about in the book, and the last thing I'll say here is that um, LGBTQ social movements have always grappled with the question of whether law is an important focus of social change or how much we should focus on law when we're fighting for sort of broader social change. And I think with this set of movements, we see that um, issue that fighting for civil rights through legal change is a really critical, but not a sufficient part of sort of broader social and cultural change. Sure, I, I understand that, that makes sense. And then um, I think I want to, touch a little bit maybe on identity. So while it's fair to say that same-sex desire and relationships have, ex have existed for probably centuries, it's only in the second half of the 19th century that homosexuality became an identity. Um, what was it before then, and when and why did people so identified be begin to come together as a political entity? So this is something that I've learned from many other scholars who have studied, especially the kind of pre-20th century um, focus on gender and sexual diversity. And a lot of scholars have written about the fact that um, same-sex desire and same-sex attraction has been there since the beginning of time. Um, but we don't really get a political identification or a social identification with identities like um, gay or lesbian until after World War II. And I think this is a time in, in the U.S. when um, there was a lot of, sort of the beginning of a lot of movement organizing for uh, minor, minority rights. Um, so the civil rights movement for racial justice really took off after World War II um, and the early movement for gay and lesbian rights that was called the homophile movement really began in the 1950s. And that's when we just start to see some of these identity labels um, really solidify. Um, and so even though, of, of course, the practice had, in, had been there since, since the beginning of time, um, we really see the political identity and the social identity developing um, really after World War II, I'd say, even though there had been these community spaces and been practices um, since way earlier. Sure. And then I know, um, uh, speaking of history, it was kind of interesting when you brought up that um, students hadn't learned much in, in high school or, or grade school or, or anywhere through that 
path. Or, and I and I just kind of remember my own experience being amputated in the 80s. I don't think I had any concept of any kind of um, social movements or or those kind of things um, through through my schooling. I don't think they taught us a single thing in high school. Like I didn't know what the Stonewall Rebellion was probably until I was a junior in college, and it's because I was taking history and sociology. Uh, courses at, at an upper level, but um, speaking of that, uh, so many people think of the Stonewall Rebellion, um, which for our listeners it was, was when patrons of New York Stonewall Inn and their supporters fought, fought back against um, persistent police repression, um, but think many people think of that as the beginning of the gay rights movement, but you and other scholars contend that the movement started several years before the 1969 riots there. Um, could you tell us more about that? Right. So, yeah, just for people who don't know or need a refresher, so the Stonewall um, Rebellion was um, in the summer of 1969. There's a bar in the West Village that I walk by uh, many times a week on the way to work called the Stonewall Inn. It's still there. Um, it was a gay bar in the late 60s, um, and it was uh, part of, sort of regular police raids that happened in many um, gay and lesbian spaces in many cities in the country at this time. And in this um, sort of summer night in June of 1969, uh, the bar goers and their supporters at the time um, fought back against a police raid. And it was one of the first times that that had really happened um, in this country that people who um, were not necessarily out um, as LGBTQ in their lives um, and didn't necessarily want that attention um, of being arrested or um, or being um, you know in the sights of police um, chose visibility and chose to stand up and fight back against uh, the the really regular part of their lives that police repression had become. Um, and this moment um, in, in the summer of 1969 often gets framed as the beginning of the modern LGBTQ movement. And it really did start an organizational revolution, and it, start, and it came at a time when there was just so much progressive organizing in this country um, around racial justice and, and gender justice and the anti-war movement and student activism. So it, it makes sense that um, we think of that as the beginning in some ways, and that it was part of this progressive revolution, and it really did spark uh, not just thousands, really, of LGBTQ uh, rights and justice organizations. But um, something that I've learned from other scholars as I've done the work for this book is that uh, really LGBTQ organizing started much earlier. And as I mentioned before, um, I talk about World War II as a starting point, and this is something that I've learned um, from others that World War II, interestingly, um, was a time when gay and lesbian people from across the country, many you know, young people in small towns who were isolated from each other, um, found each other through being in the military and started to develop communities and develop identities um, and form relationships for the first time. And it was really through that, through the military and through um, what came after that in the post-war period that um, gay and lesbian people at the time started to form identities and communities and then started to form gay and lesbian rights groups um, in the early 1950s. And that isn't a part of the usual story um, that we think of. Um, if you were to learn anything about LGBTQ organizing in the U.S., it would probably start with Stonewall in 1969. Um, but the first gay rights organization in the U.S. really started almost two decades before in 1950. Oh yeah, very interesting. And and I know 
so in those um, sort of, I guess, in that time of, of, of social change in the 60s, what can you say the leaders and participants in the uh, sort of emerging movement for or continuing movement for gay rights there learned from other movements of the time, for example, the civil rights, black power, the anti-war new left, and second wave feminism? What kind of things did the gay rights movement uh, learn from from those or from those other uh, active movements? I think this is really important that the LGBTQ movement didn't come out of nowhere. Um, so of course these are overlapping sure. communities. So there are people who identify as LGBTQ who of course also identify as um, part of a racial minority group or as women um, or as um, part of a, a religious minority. So there are overlapping communities as well. Um, so there were people in the civil rights movement who were gay and lesbian. Um, and then, of course, there were people in the LGBTQ movement who um, were racial minorities and women, et cetera. Um, but I think in terms of the separate um, movements themselves, um, for the LGBTQ movement, they did learn a lot, especially from, I would say, the African-American freedom movements of the early and late 60s. Um, so they learned um, political frames. I think there's one, this is sort of a small example, but I think a really interesting one that um, the phrase black is beautiful, that was a frame um, from black nationalist movements that sort of took a stigmatized identity and gave it sort of a proud, um, turned it into sort of a proud um, articulation sure. of identity. Um, there was a phrase that activists adopted um, in the in the early gay rights movement that was gay is good. So kind of taking on this alliteration and taking on, you know, the um, this, this notion of a stigmatized identity and turning it into something um, that was visible and proud. Um, and then I think just the, um, the tactics that activists were using at the time and were learning at the time, how to be visible, how to force um, conversations and force institutions to open up to marginalized groups and um, where to use the law when the law wasn't enough. These were all conversations and strategies and tactics that were around in other movements that LGBTQ activists were actively and really deliberately learning from. Absolutely. And I, I know... Um uh, within a lot of social movements, and certainly the gay rights movement was no exception, and you're right of this, the, the division between, I guess, what, what would be called assimilationists and liberationists um, within the movement and throughout the history of the movement, how do those two groups, if, if you can narrow it down to two groups, and I know it's not always a, you know, a dichotomy, but between the assimilationists and liberationists, how did each group view their objectives and do those two tendencies still exist within the movement? So this is a primary theme that I talk about in the book, too. Um, these terms, assimilationism and liberationism, are often ones that scholars of these movements use to kind of think about the divisions within the movement. Um, and they're ones that we can see in other social movements, too. And as you said, they're more complicated, than, like, and there's often overlap between assimilationism and liberationism, but I think it's kind of a good way of thinking about the different strategies and tactics for change. Um, so generally assimilationists um, orient themselves towards the state and towards state institutions, and they tend to focus on assimilating into mainstream norms and institutions um, and using things like the law and um, other American institutions to create change and to 
um, really just thinking about the way that those institutions that were previously closed to uh, marginalized groups and thinking about opening those institutions up. Um, whereas liberationists tend to sort of see those institutions as fundamentally broken um, and in need of rejection and instead sort of in favor of, they're sort of in favor of community controlled alternatives. Um, and they often focus not on using the law for social change, but on thinking about kind of broader cultural change. Um, I think, I think again, there's a lot of overlap with this, um, but I think it's a good um, kind of uh, theoretical way of thinking about the differences between within um, strategies for change. Often, assimilationists tend to focus on what's similar about groups of people, and liberationists tend to assert difference and um, assert sort of a pride in difference. Um, but again, as I said, I think there's a lot of complexity in that, and we can see. Um, like, for instance, in the AIDS movement, which I'm sure we'll talk more about, um, that there were um, these very strong tactics and um, very sort of direct action tactics for change that you could think of as liberationists, but at the same time, there was a focus on having the federal government be the source of change and be the source of support for people who were dying and needed research and needed support. Um, on the other hand, um, you asked if the tendency still exists. We often think about the marriage movement, which I'm sure we'll also talk more about, um, as being an assimilationist movement and that it's focusing on just opening up an existing institution and kind of using the, the law um, for civil rights gains and sort of seeking entry into an existing institution, um, whereas liberationists have um, often argued that marriage itself is an institution that is rooted in patriarchy and homophobic exclusion and isn't worth being assimilated into. Um, and so we've seen um, recently with this marriage fight and whether it's worth um, focusing on marriage um, as part of the LGBTQ movement, that that's one place where the assimilationist, liberationist divide has come up. Sure. And I know um, for a lot of young people, I think the LGBTQ movement um, sort of is defined and, and in their minds maybe begins and ends with the struggle for marriage equality because that's been so salient over the past decade and, and because it was so fast moving in some cases too, like um, a lot of things happen almost overnight. But um, but in terms of that movement for the struggle for marriage equality, if you will, could you place that particular fight with, within the context of organizing done by gay men and lesbian women in the decades prior. Sure. So, yeah, marriage is a relatively new goal of the LGBTQ movement. Um, it wasn't even really part of the agenda for social change, and it was a pretty controversial issue um, among early LGBTQ activists in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, as I mentioned before, some really saw it as kind of too heteronormative or too patriarchal, too kind of focused on rights. Um, it seemed to kind of embrace um, sexism and a possibly elitist institution, um, but um, as I've learned from many scholars, there's a historian at Columbia named George Chauncey who wrote a book called Why Marriage that I've, I really learned a lot from, and he and others, um, but he was one of the primary people who's, who's written about the connection between the AIDS crisis and the rise of the marriage movement, um, and he talked a lot about the fact that the focus on 
um, family rights and medical care and access to medical and legal decision making um, that was so central to the AIDS crisis in the 80s and early 90s really put marriage on the map and it really made um, people realized that they needed to um, legally secure their their romantic and family relationships um, for their protection and for health care and for legal um, and financial protection. So the marriage movement really gained traction in the 1990s. And it didn't even seem, one of the things I learned in doing this research that, that actually surprised me was that the early um, marriage activists really were pretty conservative about what they thought was possible. So they had some early wins in the courts um, in the early 90s and started to gain some traction um, with the with um, sort of public opinion. But they were what they they didn't even think that their progress was going to be very quick. And when they started to think about a state by state strategy for gaining marriage equality, they thought it would take way longer than it actually took. Um, and so the first marriages um, the marriage equality came really first at a state-by-state state level, and the first marriages um, between same-sex couples happened legally in 2004 in Massachusetts. Um, and then by 2015, we had the Supreme Court Obergefell decision that um, made nationwide marriage equality a, a fact. Um, and so within those 11 years, which is pretty quick for gaining a new civil right that hadn't even really been on the table, um, we, we see this rise of marriage. And so I think that's right that the people, the young people that I teach now, it's always sort of been in their reality that same-sex marriage was a possibility, even if not, even if they didn't necessarily have a marriage equality in the state that, where they grew up. Um, they knew it was a possibility and they knew that it was an ongoing fight. Um, and, um, and, they don't necessarily realize that it was a that was a fight that only really came on the table um, in the 1990s, late 1990s, really, in the LGBTQ movement. Yeah, and I know some people, I guess, um, will say, you know, now that gay and lesbian people have won marriage equality or the right to marry, what else is there to fight for? Or, or some people may sort of think that we're in a... <laughs> that we've already that that the movement has already achieved equality or whatever but what else is there to fight for certainly we're we're not done yet are we yeah i mean i think that um we have to remember that we're in changing times and so even things sure. that seemed um settled like marriage um if they're not settled anymore um so that's one thing is that um, even these things that were settled, <laughs> that seem to be settled, um, are, are back up for grabs in the Trump administration especially. And I think you know, maybe this is something we can talk about, that um, the, there's this sort of new-ish focus on so-called religious liberty and the conservative movement really using religious liberty as a way to, um, to attack attack LGBTQ rights um, in favor of so-called religious rights. Um, so even these, um, these, these rights that have been gained already, like marriage, are precarious. But I would say that um, there's a lot left to fight for. And one thing is just that there are still civil rights laws um, to be gained. So we don't have nationwide protection against job discrimination for LGBTQ people. There are fewer than half the states in the country that have passed laws that make it 
um, illegal to discriminate um, on the basis of sexual orientation and, and gender identity. We don't have feder those federal protections. We don't have a federal ruling on um, on the constitutional um, right for protection against discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. So that's one thing is just continuing to work on civil rights gains. Um, and then I think there are a, a lot of um, the, the sort of intersection of legal and cultural change is really important, and I think we'll probably talk more about that, but just once there has been this sort of civil rights gain, how do we think about full cultural inclusion? Um, but again, I, I do want to go back to the fact that there are still these sort of old basic fights for freedom and dignity and health and well-being. Um, just I was reading an article in the last couple of days that just this last Sunday, um, there, the um, South Beach in Miami had its, its annual pride parade and a gay male couple was the victim of a homophobic attack there in South Beach. So just these sort of basic, um, just basic ability to walk through the world um, and not be attacked for being who you are, um, those are still things that we very much need to fight for in this country. Sure, absolutely. And I know... Um in some ways, the LGBTQ movement has perhaps unique among marginalized groups has, has a, a certain array of political and cultural tools at their disposal. Um, maybe could you talk a little bit about what those tools are and what limitations, um, what the limitation of having those financial, social, and cultural resources might be? So one of the things I talk a lot in, in, about in the book and that I want to be a primary takeaway is that there are lots of ways to make social change. And I also grew up in the 80s, and um, I've talked with my students a lot about this too, that um, when I was a teenager and in college, I kind of looked back on the 60s and 70s and thought like, oh, that was the time that I should have lived, like that that was when social change was really being made. And I, I think I was thinking pretty narrowly about it at the time that, there was only one way to do social movements, and that was marching in the street and these kind of mass demonstrations. Um, and what I talk with my students about is that um, one of the things we can learn about from the LGBTQ movement as well as other movements, um, like the racial justice movements um, starting in the six, 50s and 60s, is that there are lots of ways to make social change, um, and those can be about focusing on law, focusing on public policy, focusing on using mass action to force the state to change um, and incorporate marginalized groups. But it, it can also be about cultural change and a focus on visibility and a focus on using the arts and popular culture to change hearts and minds. And so that's one of the things I talk about in the book, that some of the tools at the disposal of LGBTQ activists have been cultural ones. And I don't think that um, having so many tools at um, their disposal over history has been um, a downside, but I think that um, you know it's, it's never problematic to have a lot of tools at your disposal when you're thinking about social change. I just think it's important to think about how those tools are used and apportioned. And so one of the things I write about in the book is um, that we need to think about um, diversity within the movement and the fact that there are so many forms of privilege and marginality in the movement and that even though people within the movement may share a sexual identity or a gender identity, they have other parts of their identity um, 
that also come into play, um, like their racial identity or their gender identity or um, their religious identity. And that can have the effect of um, sort of privileging some goals over others. And I think it's important to think about um, the, the, the intersectionality of identity and the movement and um, paying attention to the most marginalized um, people and groups within any, any movement. So, for instance, we talked about the marriage movement. Um, often people have talked about the fact that the focus on marriage kind of drew resources and attention potentially away from other issues that might affect more marginalized um, people within the broader um, and kind of more diverse LGBTQ community. Um, we There are some folks in the movement who do focus their work, for instance, on um, violence against trans people and particularly trans women of color. Um, and that's an issue that um, sometimes gets um, sort of pushed to the side when there are these other focuses like on, on civil rights um, laws and, and marriage. Um, so I think the fact that there are many uh, tools and resources at the disposal of this movement means that um, there's an opportunity to focus on diversity and intersectionality as well. Sure, and, that, and I think, yeah, the intersectionality, I think, is really important in a lot of different movements because in some cases you can get a movement where sort of the, maybe it's defined in the mainstream or the media by some of the more privileged elements of the movement in some cases or whatever, not just with the a gay rights movement, but any kind of social movement. Often there might be a tendency for <laughs> certain voices to get heard over others and to sort of right. define a really diverse movement and kind of channel it into one or two things when it might be much broader than that. Um, one thing that was kind of interesting is uh, your mention of the 80s. I kind of grew up in the same time period and kind of felt the same thing, like, geez, I should have been 18 in 1968 when I could mm -hmm. <laughs> be part of something. And then I think as I've grown older, kind of realized again that, you know, activism could take on many different forms and, and there's different moments and stuff, and so it doesn't always have to be one particular way. And I, I guess um, just going back to the 80s, and I probably should have mentioned this when we were talking about it, but uh, one thing you talk about in your book, too, which kind of highlights some of the tension between um, what we might call the liberation and the assimilation parts of the movement was pretty apparent in the AIDS movement, and, and I didn't know if you wanted to go into a little bit more about that time period and, and some of the tensions within the movement there. Sure. So um, we started to see in this country, or just in the world, we started to see the first cases of AIDS and understand what those were um, in the very early part of the 1980s. And it took a number of years um, in this country for that to be taken seriously by the mainstream. So the mainstream media took a couple of years to really start covering the AIDS crisis. Um, president at the time, Ronald Reagan, took him a number of years to even utter the word AIDS. He really um, did not mobilize the federal government to do anything to support um, people who were becoming sick and dying um, and to put the resources of the federal government behind research and development and um, and AIDS treatment and drug trials that were really needed. And a movement developed starting in the very early on, um, early 80s, 1981, 82, 83, 
to one, provide services for people who are becoming sick and dying from within the community. So aid service organizations um, formed in communities all across the country to just provide these services that the government wasn't providing. Um, hospitals at the time were, um, because there was so little known about AIDS um, and because it was primarily um, affecting um, gay men and gay men were already so stigmatized, hospitals were really um, not taking, not doing what they should have done, um, not um, serving people who are coming in um, sick and dying. And so the community itself really mobilized to take care of itself and to provide services for, um, for people who were sick and for their loved ones. And then later in the 80s, um, out of that service organization and out of the frustration with the fact that the federal government was really ignoring this crisis, there was a more direct, direct action part of the movement that formed. There was an organization that many people um, may have heard of called ACT UP, um, AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, that started in 1987. And this was really a very visible um, direct action group that its goal was um, to increase visibility for, for um, people who are suffering with AIDS and to really um, force the federal government to provide resources and support. And it's an interesting, I think it, it, it's, it shows this tension between liberationism and assimilationism in that um, the, the federal government was really the entity that had the size and the resources to provide the kind of support that was needed to people with HIV and AIDS. And so this movement that seemed very radical um, and that it had these sort of direct action tactics and civil disobedience tactics, it was, in that sense, it was liberationist, but it was asking the federal government to do something. And in that sense, it was kind of relying on the federal government in a way that we might think of assimilationists doing. Um, and so it really sort of combined the sort of liberationist focus on direct action tactics and um, really not trusting that the institutions that existed already could provide protection and could change, but at the same time um, asking the federal government um, f to do something <laughs> um, that it wasn't at the time and recognizing that they couldn't afford to turn away from the federal government. Um, some of my favorite examples of activism from the LGBTQ movement over history come from, um, from ACT UP and from the radical activism um, of this time and um, of AIDS activists. Um, they really combined civil disobedience tactics and sort of artistic theatrical tactics with mass action and, um, and with a really just savvy use of the media. Um, so whether that was, you know, stopping traffic in New York City through um, die-ins in the street, um, to interrupting a live news broadcast, um, to unrolling a giant condom on um, North Carolina Senator Jesse Helms's house um, in 1991, um, these were all about raising visibility um, for this crisis and for people who the federal government was really trying to um, make disappear, both. Uh, symbolically and um, materially. Yes, and uh, if you just joined us, my guest tonight is Lisa Stolberg, uh, a professor of sociology at NYU and author of LGBTQ Social Movements, and we're talking about uh, her book uh, and more broadly about um, 
the uh, the LGBTQ movements in the United States. Um, and kind of bringing it up closer to the present day, I, I guess in, in 2014, uh, then-President Obama signed an executive order barring employment discrimination by sexual orientation and gender identity in, in federal contracting. And he granted gender identity protections to all federal employees also in 2014, Obama's Justice Department reinterpreted federal sex discrimination protections to include gender identity and transgender status. Um, I guess looking at the current day, can Trump undo all of that progress? Um, well, I'm not a lawyer, but I have some opinions on, about this that I think are somewhat um, informed um, in that Sure. I, I think the short answer is that he he can undo a fair amount of it. So um, this shows that we need to keep working on broad civil rights protection. So as I mentioned, currently only 20 states plus the District of, of Columbia have um, statewide employment non-discrimination laws that cover sexual orientation and gender identity. So there's still more than half of the states in the country that where it's um, not illegal to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. And we don't really have a federal law um, that covers employment, non-discri- employment non-discrimination and um, non-discrimination in housing and other uh, public access um, and facilities laws. So President Obama, especially in his second term, did a lot to try to correct for this where he could. Um, so he didn't have the ability to um, kind of make broad laws through the Congress because he didn't have Congress on his side at this time, but he was able to, to sign some executive orders that that did a lot. So this, he signed this executive order, as you mentioned, in 2014 that um, barred employment discrimination by sexual orientation in federal contracting. So that covered about 20% of the American workforce. Um, he also reinterpreted sex discrimination protections to include gender identity. Um, Title IX, which is um, a law that was passed in the early 1970s to bar sex discrimination in schools. Um, Obama reinterpreted that to say that sex discrimination includes um, gender identity, so that protected transgender students. He he did a lot within what he could at the time to kind of use the executive power to protect against um, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity, but I think one of the one of the problems with that is that um, that all happened through executive order, and that's easy to undo. So Trump, when he took office, um, one of the kind of first <laughs> big things he did for LGBTQ um, issues is that he reinterpreted Title IX back so that it didn't um, protect against uh, discrimination based on on gender identity identity anymore. Um, and he's also just really um, been emboldened and um, to, to turn his attention to um, anti-gay and anti-trans efforts. And we see this. He attempted to, um, by, by a series of tweets um, last summer, to, to ban transgender members of the military. He tried that again um, just uh, very recently. Um, he's using the language of religious freedom and states' rights to um, to uh, pass anti-LGBTQ laws and policies. I think he's been able to do a little bit of this, but I think so far he's actually being checked by the courts and by politics. So 
the courts have ruled so far that he can't ban transgender service members, um, and they're starting to take up this religious freedom argument. Um, so we'll see. I think he's been he's been able to do some things that he can't um, do them alone, and he um, so far the courts have provided a little bit of a check on that. I think we'll see as he's able to appoint more members of the court um, whether that sticks. But for right now, he's definitely trying to do everything within his power to roll back some of the gains um, from the from the Obama administration. And we'll see whether the yeah, courts allow him to do that. Sure, and it's been a little disappointed. I mean, I know when he talked about making making America great again. We all know what he was talking about, pre-civil rights, pre, you know, I mean, all kinds of stuff. But, you know, there was a moment, I think, after the Pulse nightclub shooting it, or somewhere in there where, where Trump sort of implied that, that he wasn't going to be a reactionary on, on LGBTQ issues. And, and, of course, that turned out not to be true. I mean, he chose Mike Pence as his vice president and kind of telegraphed where he was going, but I mean, um, I think it's a little bit disappointing that uh, that he didn't sort of adopt a more neutral or positive stance rather than sort of <laughs> go back into that sort of very reactionary um, position on those issues. And I, I guess stepping away a little bit, though, from uh, government or the public policy side, I, it's also important, as you do in your book, to acknowledge um, other influences in society, for example, um, what role has pop culture played in the movements aimed at securing rights for LGBTQ individuals? So this is another big theme of the book is that I do really believe that pop culture has a big role to play in social change. And it's also work that I'm doing now. I'm working with a graduate student at NYU to do an interview study where we're looking at the connection between pop culture and LGBTQ social change, where we're interviewing people who are part of pop culture, whether through sports or um, television or film or, or music. And I really um, believe, one, believe in the space of pop culture for social change, and two, believe that it is a big space for social change. Um, so even just, you know, uh, some current examples from um, – from other parts of the social justice world, like um, thinking about the conversation around the movie Black Panther um, and that that is a very successful, very large budget movie that has allowed us to have a complicated conversation about race and identity and politics. Um, there's a movie out now called Love, Simon um, that was a mainstream movie aimed at teenagers that came from a, a young adult novel um, that centers around a coming out story and a same-sex romance between two teenage boys, and it's a mainstream movie um, played in you know mainstream theaters. It doesn't. We we see these spaces that are these kind of mainstream pop cultural spaces that aren't really known for a lot of risk taking um, in storytelling, um, and that are aimed at young people and aimed at diverse audiences, and they're doing really well. Um, so we're seeing that in the space of mainstream pop culture, there is room for diversity and that's really exciting and it seems to be what people want and their and um, audiences are really hungry for great storytelling that does, um, that is inclusive of diverse stories. Um, I think art and pop culture have always been a really substantial part of the LGBTQ movement and it's something that people have written a fair amount about that um, you know, starting in 
um, the 80s, and we talked about Ronald Reagan, that um, one of the sort of the, the main prompt for Ronald Reagan even mentioning the word AIDS was that his friend Rock Hudson um, died of, of AIDS-related causes in the mid-1980s. Um, so this big celebrity um, sort of brought, brought public attention and brought public policy attention to AIDS and HIV. Um, and there have been spaces throughout the 80s and 90s um, where we've started to see um, new characters, new storylines, inclusive of LGBTQ people and stories and, um, and experiences that have done really well and that have been part of popular culture. And I just think it's hard not to credit pop culture with um, shifts in public opinion and shifts in public policy around LGBTQ social change. Um, it's, it's not just, you know, it, it's people making art um, to change hearts and minds, and then it's also people um, making art for the purpose of making art where their stories are just inclusive of a broader range of people and then audiences come to fall in love with those characters and those storylines and that I do think changes hearts and minds. Sure, and that's a, some good examples there. Uh, interestingly enough, the last, um, I don't go to very many movies in the theater, but the last one I did see was Love, Simon I, when I was mm -hmm. on my vacation and visit my girlfriend in California. It was her 15-year-old daughter that picked which movie mm -hmm. the three of us went to, and that's what we watched. So <laughs> and it is it's fairly well done, I think, for a, yeah, you know, yeah. a mainstream kind of pop culture movie. I think it yeah. covers a lot of issues with some complexity. And, and, and I, yeah, just um, so that that's a good point. I think there's a lot out there to be looked at. And um, I guess sort of tracking back, I kind of feel like it might be doing this a little out of order. This might have gone better with the uh, Trump question earlier. But um, for those who kind of think that sort of the, for example, the anti-trans maneuvers like North Carolina bathroom, North Carolina's bathroom bill, for those that think something like that is an outlier and that the tide has swung sort of irreversibly and linearly, linearly toward uh, protection for LGBTQ Americans, um, what would you say to people that kind of think that there's no turning back there or that that we're headed in a straight direction forward? So um, just to remind people, so in um, I think just about two years ago, in, in March of 2016, North Carolina passed this law that um, was called HB2 um, that the, a Republican governor um, who's since been voted out of office um, signed into law. And the law um, was a broad anti-LGBTQ law in that it um, took away a Charlotte, North Carolina anti-discrimination ordinance. It said that it couldn't, it prohibited public entities within the state from passing non-discrimination laws um, that would protect LGBTQ people. And then it also had this um, anti-trans element which said that people um, who were using single-sex bathrooms, so multi-occupancy single-sex bathrooms, had to use bathrooms that corresponded with the sex that was listed on their birth certificate. Um, so this banned many trans people from using the bathroom that corresponded to their gender identity and their gender presentation. Um, and there was a huge amount of backlash against this bill in North Carolina. So the good news was that um, the law was really unpopular and that there were businesses and sports teams and league, sports leagues and a lot of celebrities who came out 
against this law and understood that it was anti-LGBTQ and specifically anti-trans. And even though some other states, um, I think Texas was one example, tried to pass laws like this, um, they they also faced a lot of um, negative response from the public, and not even just from progressives, but just from people that you wouldn't necessarily expect to um, respond to LGBTQ um, civil rights did so. And so I think you can see that there's a, there's a you know, strong negative in that and that these states are trying to pass these really, really horrible laws, um, you know, just these laws that even prevent um, cities and towns from passing non-discrimination ordinances. Um, but at the same time, we see a public that is not standing for that anymore. So I think that's good news. I think you know the question of whether the tide has swung towards the protection of LGBTQ people. I just I think that we can't take anything for granted, especially with Trump now. Um, and I would point us again to um, you mentioned Mike Pence, and I think the focus on religious liberty is something that we're going to see um, a lot a lot more of from this administration. So um, there's this case before the Supreme Court now. Um, called Masterpiece Cake Shop that is um, a case of a, of a baker in Colorado um, who refused to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple um, and made the argument that on religious grounds um, he didn't have to use his artistic talent to convey a message that he disagreed with. And the Trump administration weighed in uh, to support his right um, to refuse the same-sex couple, his services. And so I think that's the kind of thing that we're going to see more and more of from this administration. So I just think we can't take anything for granted, even though we are seeing a lot of positive signs when it comes to public opinion. Sure. Yeah, and I, I think that's important to note. Is it, certainly there's been progress, but obviously um, the minute people sort of <laughs> – get complacent then yeah. all kinds of yeah problems can happen especially and it's hard to imagine anybody people shouldn't be complacent given who the you know the current occupant of the white house is and also you know the composition of congress and a lot of the state legislatures in this time and age it isn't just trump but an entire sort of <laughs> most of yeah. the political party not every republican but certainly a, a large segment of that party um and then um, given that your undergraduate students at NYU have a hard time understanding why providing equal rights to LBGTQ people is, is maybe is so controversial, do you feel optimistic about the future, at least in the long run? I, I am optimistic, and um, I think that young people especially are incredibly inspiring, um, and I think about some of the movements that we've seen over the last couple of years and even over the last couple of months. So the Black Lives Matter movement, I think, has been a big one for in talking with my students, um, just kind of reigniting youth activism. Um, and we've seen, um, you know, with uh, young people in Parkland, Florida, um, with, with DACA activists and young people who are fighting for um, immigrant rights, that there are a lot of young people fighting for their lives and their safety. But I guess something that I've been thinking about recently, especially in the context of, of Parkland and watching these young people um, mobilize um, their communities and also mobilize through media and social media, that adults also need to step up our game and that we can't sure. rely on we can't rely on 
these incredible young people um, to, you know, whether from the Black Lives Matter movement or the DACA movement or Parkland to do um, to do our work for us. <laughs> um, and so I'm optimistic that um, young people like my undergrads at NYU um, don't see LGBTQ people <laughs> or LGBTQ rights as controversial. Um, and I'm optimistic that there are so many young people who are willing to fight for social change and fight for protection from their government and really not let their government off the hook. But I also hope that the, those of us who have been around a little bit longer will be inspired by these young people and also will see it as our job to, um, to, to join them and to lead where we can and use our positions of power to really create change. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I certainly agree with that. And and uh, I appreciate very much um, your time and all your research and work and, and your passion and, and everything you've done here. Um, before I let you go, I guess um, for our listeners, um, um, can you tell them where they can go for more information or where they can get the book? Um, I'm, I'm sure the obvious places, but I mean, uh, if you have any, any recommendations. And if you have a social media page of your own or anything that they can follow, that would be great too. Thank you. Um, so the book is available anywhere books are sold, um, and it's um, called LGBTQ Social Movements um, out with Polity Press now. Um, I can be found at NYU. That's always a good place to look for me. And I think Twitter is another great place, at just at Lisa Stolberg. Um, and I would love to continue the conversation. I'm, I've just been so there's, – there's so much to, to watch now um, in the news and to consume. And I think there's so much to be inspired by. And I think um, one of the things that um, I've, I've learned, I think, just especially since this last, federal, last presidential administration, um, is that even though there's a lot that's hard about social media um, and there's a lot that can be negative about it, it also can prompt some really incredible conversations and some really incredible connections. And I've, I've really loved that opportunity to get to know people and their work through um, through social media. Absolutely. Well, thank you again so much for joining us. And I guess we made it 54 minutes without sirens in the background. So yeah, that's there were some, but too. I'm glad you did On either them. end. <laughs> so, but, um, Thanks, Keith. Thank you so much. Uh, and uh, I know it's late there, so I'll let you get some rest. And, and thank you again uh, for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful weekend as well. Thanks so much. You too. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you.